uh, you have a good rest of the day. I'll tell you, Memorial Day is always, I think it's my, my best holiday. I enjoy it a number of reasons. One, I really enjoy doing for you tomorrow what we're going to do. And if you got any add-on to the list, I know, you know, always there's people that the last minute you want to bring or whatever, that's fine. Just tell my wife this morning, or tell uh, Kelly this morning, so uh, I can uh, get some extra meat this afternoon when we pick it up. But uh, I, I want it to be your day tomorrow. I just want it to be a fun time for you where you can come and just relax. And uh, we'll just have a lot of, lot of fun things we do, just a time of fellowship. So I'm looking forward to that. But I, uh, I just enjoy it. You know, it's a time when uh, you get a long weekend and uh, families get to do things together. I love to come out at night and smell the barbecue grills drifting down through the... And then what else can I say? they got unlimited war movies. I mean, one after the other on television. I, can I say? Anyway, if you have your Bibles this morning, <coughs> let's turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. As you know, <coughs> we have been coming through the Bible book by book, really focusing on how for you to learn your Bible. We've tied this in with what we did before we started studying the books. And then Thursday night in our Bible study, we've kind of taken a specialized little session here where we're showing you how to catalog all your notes, build your own reference Bible, and uh, put it all together so that you can have uh, a Bible that's your fingertips. You can really begin to understand as you, down the line, grow in the Word of God, begin to deal with people, and uh, whether it's at work or people that you're working with here or somebody you meet that you have the ability to uh, really open up the scriptures and to show them what the Bible says without fumbling around trying to uh, find all the verses. But now we come to the book of 1 Corinthians. And we now look at, uh, last week we looked at Romans and we talked about Romans, how that when Paul wrote Romans, he wrote it differently than he writes all of his other books. When we saw the book of Romans, we saw him not dealing directly with just a church or Christians uh, in the city of Rome, but all of the aspect of the Roman Empire running the world, and he writes it from a perspective that is an uh, incredible perspective, showing us that, uh, according to Daniel's chapter 2 and Daniel's image, the fact that even today we are in the Roman Empire, laying that thing out for the doctrine of the church. Now, in the book of 1 Corinthians, we have our first book that is written directly to a church. This is a group of believers, and he writes two letters to them, 1 and 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> and uh, to me, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians is a book that shows us really what kind of church not to be. And, you know, as I was growing up, I first uh, got my life right with God back in about 1971, and uh, maybe... Uh, end of 1970, somewhere in there, and uh, my life began a new journey then, and I'll never forget, you know, I was going to, I worked in a factory back then, and I was just like one of the, all the other guys there, you know, and one night uh, I come to the place where uh, I made a deal with God, and I showed up the next morning with a new test in my pocket, a bunch of tracks in my pocket, and I've uh, been making people mad ever since. It's a great job. You had to try it sometime, and uh, you know, all through my journey and the ins and outs of learning the ministry, I've learned as much from people who showed me what to do as I have from people who showed me what not to do. In my life, I really, I can place my ministry. If you would ever sit down and talk to me in a biographical way, I can trace my ministry back to, through three men. 
two of those men had a direct impact on my life that probably shaped everything I do and understand about the ministry. And, uh, you know, through those two men, I learned uh, everything I know today. There was one other man that really focused me into the deeper aspects of the Word of God. But, uh, but there was two men in my life that absolutely shaped my concept of ministry. The first man in my life was my father in the Lord. And he was a man that God put in my life after my father died, that God put into my life that really uh, got me on course. Once I got focused on where I needed to go and what I needed to do, God put a man in my life that I'm eternally grateful for. And he is the Apostle Paul of my life. Everything I know that is good about ministry or people, I learned from this man. I learned my love for the Word of God. I think the greatest thing he taught me was a passion for the Word of God. I think I saw in his life and his ministry a man when every time he preached that you just saw the passion that he had for God in such a way that was infectious to people. And I grew up under his ministry and I grew up working with him and, and him. I'll never forget, I told him. <clears throat> I'll never forget one time <clears throat> and I used to drive with him <clears throat> when he would preach revivals and I would lead singing for him, and I played the trumpet back then, and I would play the trumpet and lead singing. It was a great little deal, and I learned a lot from it. Got to travel around with him, and I'll never forget those long rides there. You know, I began to ask him questions about the Bible, much like you guys do me now, and talk with him. And I asked him one time, or I told him one time, I said, you know what? I think God's called me to preach. And I said, I want you to teach me to preach. And you know what? That was the greatest request I ever made of anybody. But boy, I'll tell you what. It's one of those things like, be careful what you wish for, you know, because I grew up, I, I'm privileged in a lot of ways. I grew up in the last aspect of seeing the last of the old Philadelphian preachers before they died off. When J. Frank Norris split with the Southern Baptist Convention back in the 30s and the, uh, in the 40s back there and started the World Fellowship, he trained... He trained the men that were the pastors that I grew up under. He trained men like Harold Henniger. He tra trained men like uh, Dallas Billington. He trained, trained men like John Rawlings. He trained men like Beecham Vick. He trained all the men that are now either dead or dying or very old in age. But I got to see those men. Many of those men, I got to see them start out believing a book, wind up not believing a book. But I had the privilege of being trained by the son of one of those men, spiritually speaking. And uh, he was an old school guy. And uh, when I asked him to teach me how to preach, boy, I'll tell you what, that was, uh, I never forgot that day, never forgot that moment, and it's a good thing. But he taught you, I mean, he taught you, uh, you know what, the first time I ever preached, you guys go down to the mission down there, and we preach down there, and there's a lot of guys down there. First time I ever preached in my life, I preached at the Brown Street Mission probably 250 people down there, and I was all hot and ready to go, you know. This was my first thing, and I was going to get up there and, and preach to them, you know, and just like most guys. I got up there, boy, and let her rip, boy, and I got it going down through there, and I don't even remember what my text was, but I misquoted a verse. And in front of 200 people in the middle of that thing, he stopped me and told me that if I was going to preach the Word of God, I needed to quote the Word of God correctly. And then he said, go ahead and finish your message. Well, try that sometime in your life, you see. 
Now, he did that four times. Hey, the last time he did it, I was in front of 2,500 people. We preached in a Bible conference together. He stopped me flat dead in the middle of that thing and corrected me on something I said that wasn't exactly right. Afterwards, I'll never forget this. Afterwards, he'd come over to me and it was like two foot, it was one of those moments that you see in Clash of the Titans, you know, or Remember the Titans or, you know, uh, uh, Rudy or something like that, you know. It was one of those moments that I'll never forget. When I walked over there and I was all hot and sweaty, he was all hot and sweaty because he finished preaching before I did. And he come over there and he got me by the tie and he kind of pulled me head, head to head. And then he said to me, he said this, he says, did I just embarrass you? And I said, well, a little bit. <laughs> and he said, well, son, better now than at the judgment seat of Christ. And then he slapped me like that, you know. Now, that's his way of saying, get it right. You know what? I got it right. That old boy taught me the good things. Can't train them like that today. Try to train them like that today, and they'd be running out going to ACWLU or something like that, you know. Can't do it. That was the old days, and that was the old school. And that's probably why we don't have many preachers today that can tear their paint off the wall. A lot of teachers, not many preachers. The old boys are gone. With that went a great art, the art of taking the Word of God and peeling the paint off the wall whatever getting a scraper. And you don't see it much anymore. Don't see it in young people anymore. Got a lot of good teachers. Got a lot of guys get up and lay out a lot of good stuff. But it's hard to find somebody that can just take the paint off the walls when it needs to be taken off, and then revert back to the ability to teach. That's the way these old boys were. Everything I learned good about the ministry, I learned from him. I told him that he had the right to say to me, correct me, anytime, place." You know why? Because I knew even today, he's still alive. Even today, I know that he's forgotten more about the Bible than I ever learned. He's forgotten more about the ministry than I ever learned. And I told him years ago he had the right to change me, correct me, or do anything in my life that he wanted to because I knew that God had put him in my life and I knew that I could learn from him. And every good thing I learned about God and the Word of God and the ministry, I learned from him. Then there was another man that God put in my life. This man taught me everything not to do about the ministry. I learned some tremendous things from this guy of what not to do. In this guy, I saw every political move that could be made. And this guy, I saw everything that every big-time preacher does to pull it off. And, uh, I mean, it was, uh, but I learned, and I'm indebted to both of them. I would never really speak ill of either one of them. Because I understand that the bottom line, even though there was a lot of things wrong with one, and they, I mean, Mel, Mel wasn't perfect, there was a lot of things wrong with him. But the bottom line was, I knew where they were coming from. And I understood, even to this day, I have deep respect for both of them simply because of what they taught me. And I'm saying all that to say this. As you grow up in the Word of God, and as you grow up in ministry, learn from people who do it right. Learn from people who do it wrong. Don't ever get so antagonistic towards somebody because what they believe isn't lined up with where you're at that you ever lose the blessings of learning from them what not to do. Now, I said all that to say this. The church at Corinth is a model for us in the New Testament of what not to do. And you're going to find that this is how God teaches you the Bible. He'll take somebody, something, some church, and He'll show you everything bad about it, and you'll learn what not to do, and you'll get some tremendous insights spiritually from it. Now, the name Corinthian means ornaments. And I don't know of another church that fits into the 
worldly, fleshly, 20th century, 21st century now, churches that we live in as the church at Corinth. A church that is worldly, a church that is fleshy, a church that is out of touch with reality of where God is, the Bible is, and the ministry is. It's a church that focuses on things. And of course, we find in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, that that is the Laodicean church. The church that says, look at us. We got great buildings. We got stained glass windows. We got a 6,000 foot steeple. We got this. We got that. We got all of the stuff that we, all of the things. And of course, the reason why they do that, I don't know if you figured it out yet or not. The reason why you find churches now with Starbucks, pretty soon you'll find them with Taco Bell. Because they all have a Spanish ministry. And then they'll have chicken. That'll be for all the ex-Methodists. But they'll walk down the line. The reason why they got to build them so big and so beautiful, put in $5 million worth of sound system, and, uh, you know, everything and, and reach out to you, is because when you don't have a Bible anymore, those are the things you got to result to to get people come. And we don't have a multimedia presentation. We don't have anything. That, we, we don't have any of those things. We have one thing here. We, it's not a Christian smorgasbord where you come in and get whatever you want to eat. We have one thing we serve. In a lot of ways, it's like the City Union Mission. This is a soup kitchen for a bunch of bums that are hungry. You hungry bums? Okay. I'm a hungry bum too. And I looked at a long time ago that soul winning and the ministry is nothing more than one beggar telling another beggar where you found some bread to eat. And of course, that's what a church ought to be and that's what this church is. And that's why uh, you learn so much from the church at Corinth. A church which means ornaments. All the little things that glitter. All the little things that seem like spectacular. All the little things you got to do because it's like fishing. And the shinier lure you have, the more you attract the fish and the more they come. The problem is you don't have anything to give them when you get there. And the church at Corinth is a picture of the 20, 21st century body of Christ. A church that has left the Bible and its doctrine... And now it's left it for a fleshy, sensual, worldly encounter with God. I was driving down the street the other day going somewhere. And I saw this sign in this church that said, Come try our alternative worship service. Now that got my attention. What would you think an alternative worship service would be? I didn't know there was an alternative to worship. So I called the church. And I got some poor hapless secretary who probably... You know, didn't know anything or not. And I said, I saw your sign and I'm really interested. I said, can you explain to me what is an alternative worship service? And she said, well, some people, she says, it's more of a conventional style of worship. And she says, it's more convenient style of worship. I said, convenient for who? God or the people? She didn't understand my question, so I backed off a little bit. I, and, and she could never figure it out. I could never figure it out. What is an alternative? As far as I know, the Bible only gives one definition of worship in the book of John. And it says, true worshipers have to worship God in spirit and truth. Now, I don't know what alternative there is to that. But anyway, we will not. We, we canceled our alternative worship service this morning, as you can well imagine. But that's the church at Corinth. Now, Paul addresses this church, and he calls them in chapter 3, verse 1, a bunch of spiritual babies, and you're going to see this. Each chapter, he deals with issues, or more than one issue, that they are totally out of line on. And in doing so, we get a tremendous insight, as I said earlier, how not to do some things. The book of 1 Corinthians is not a how-to book. 
the book of 1 Corinthians is a how-not-to book. But in learning it, boy, I mean, there are some tremendous things that you're going to see this morning, and obviously we're going to point them out as we go through as best we can. And uh, in this book, Paul deals with them, and you see that he uses the principles in dealing with people that we talked about last week in the book of Romans, chapter 14 and 15. Now, you'll see these intertwined in here because the book, of, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians is written about the same time in the book of Romans, 57 A.D., somewhere there between Acts chapter 19 and verse 20. So you begin seeing him use those principles that he lays down in the book of Romans, which forms for us the doctrine of Christian uh, doctrine for us, the handbook of Christian doctrine for us. All right, now we're going to start to come through these. Let's have a word of prayer here, and then we're going to start to take it apart chapter by chapter, and we'll see what we come up with. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. We thank you for all that you do for us. We thank you for the uh, folks that you brought today. We thank you uh, for Penny and Alice being here today, Lord, and what a, a joy it is, uh, how dear they are in our hearts, and how many memories it flooded back uh, to hear Penny sing and to see Alice, and how many uh, selfless years, Lord, that uh, they gave to the ministry for you that there's men in the ministry today that doesn't even remember who they are, but how because of their faithfulness, they were just a little part of, of doing and, and putting into their lives uh, what needed to be done. Thank you for that. We pray, Father, that you'll bless us today as we come to your word. And we love you. We honor you, honor this book. And, uh, Lord, never let us deny it, but always let us stand on it. Let it be the only book that we proclaim and the only thing we preach. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, in chapter 1, you see that this church has violated the number one principle of building a church. And that is that there's divisions in this church. Look at chapter 1, verse 9. It says, God is faithful, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but find ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Of course, this is not happening here. There are divisions among them. And you're going to find as we come through this chapter that the church at Corinth has violated the number one rule, and that is the rule of unity. Once your unity breaks down in any church, any organization, but especially the church, once you break down the unity, and the unity is based on the mindset. The mindset is based on let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, which is the Word of God. So that is the mind we're to have. And that joins us together as the body perfectly. And that's why the body of Christ is disjointed today. Now here's what they're arguing about in chapter 1, down through verses 11 through 17. I know this is going to be hard for you to believe. But it says, I am a Paul. Somebody else is. They're arguing about who baptized who. Now, here's what they're doing here, and this is why Paul calls them a bunch of spiritual babies. This is what they're doing. They're taking baptism, and because, let's say, Pam here was baptized by the Apostle Paul, and let's say that Steve here was baptized by, by, uh, by me, well, they're saying, well, Paul was a greater than Bob Alexander. He's the chief apostle. So therefore, you must be more spiritual than Steve because the body that baptized you was more spiritual. And they're putting a pecking order or a social class in the church based on the spirituality or the notoriety or the popularity of the person that baptized you. 
and where you were baptized by Paul and Steve was baptized by me because Paul's a greater Christian, that gives some greater spiritual significance to your walk with Christ than being baptized by a nobody as, as Steve was when I baptized him. And of course, uh, he says down through here, he says, uh, he says, you guys have got some real problems here. And he deals with them on that issue. But this is what I want to give you. And in answering that, we get one of the greatest teachings on how you know that baptism will not, cannot, never has been able to save you. And this is what you get in 1 Corinthians. He'll deal with the issue, but then he'll give you an answer that will surpass the issue. And he will teach us by what somebody said or did or is doing that is wrong, the great spiritual impact lesson to teach us as the body of Christ in something by what they're doing wrong. Now, in Paul's answer, as I said, we get one of the greatest teachings on how that you know that baptism can't save you. And when you come down through here, you'll find we talked about this last week in the book of Acts. I told you how that there's more people died and went to hell in the book of Acts than, than any, all the sins, all the vices of the world combined. Why? Because it's the book of Acts where men take the doctrine of what we call baptism regeneration. First time you find it showing up in the Bible is in the book of Acts. And you find it there in Acts chapter 19 with uh, uh, a professional Christian college where they're disputing with Paul over baptism for salvation. And after three or four weeks or months, Paul just says, forget it. I can't do anything here. And off he goes. When you start to look at that school there in Acts chapter 19, you'll see that they got their roots in, you guessed it, Alexandria, Egypt. You're going to find that every major cult in the world, every major cult in the world, Roman Catholicism, the Orthodox branch of it, the Anglican Church, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Lutheran, the Christian Church, Church of Christ, the Mormons, and the Jehovah Witnesses, and a host of others, all teach the same doctrine. You have to be baptized in water to be saved. And where do they base it? Acts 2.38, Mark 16.16, 16, number of other places found in the book of Acts. Every one of those false churches teach that you have to be baptized to go to heaven. Some of them baptize you when you're a baby. Some of them baptize when you're an adult. They all think that their own baptism is the only baptism. In other words, they don't recognize each other's baptisms. The Church of Christ would never rep represent a Roman Catholic baptism. A Roman Catholic would never, represent, never look at a Mormon and say, that's good, or a Jehovah Witness. He don't, they don't recognize anybody. But it's, it's all inclusive to themselves. And in that, they're much the same. But let me show you. Notice how one simple passage clearly clears up bad doctrine. Now look at chapter 1. Let's pick it up here in verse 14. Follow along with me and watch how easy this is. This is on the issue of baptism. I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. The first thing he does is downplay the concept of who baptizes who, puts some spiritual significance to it. And then in verse 17, he lays the bombshell. And this bombshell bombs out every Roman Catholic, every Orthodox, every Anglican, every Church of Christ, every Mormon, every Jehovah Witness, and anybody. This thing just says it so clearly and plainly, you'd have to be demon-possessed to see anything else. Now here's what it says in verse 17. The greatest Christian that ever lived, doctrinal statement on baptism. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. You know what he just did? He shows you the difference between baptism and the gospel. 
Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that you and I were saved by the gospel. The gospel by the Bible's definition that Jesus Christ was buried by the, according to the scriptures, rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and based on that, that's how you and I get saved. He just told you that Christ didn't send him to baptize anybody, but sent him to preach the gospel. Well, salvation is part of being baptized is part of salvation. Then why didn't God send him to baptize just like he sent him to preach the gospel? You know why? Because they're not the same. They're not the same. Baptism can't save you, and Paul tells you right here that it can't. He shows you right here that there's a difference between the two, and it's one little passage. Christ didn't send him to baptize. Well, wait a minute. If baptism is the mode of salvation, you telling me that God didn't send Paul to save anybody? Certainly, you find, you find scores and scores and scores and scores of churches and people that are one to Christ by the Apostle Paul. And you know what? He makes a clear difference between baptizing them and preaching the gospel. And he says, Christ never sent me to baptize. He sent me to preach what saved people. Clearly showing you that baptism doesn't do anything for you except get you wet. There is no salvation in baptism. Then we look at chapter 2. And we got in chapter 2 that Paul starts to deal with them on the fact that they've got worldly wisdom in the church versus godly wisdom. And I guess this is the number one curse of the body of Christ today. The church at Corinth had stopped using the Bible and moved into the realm of Christian worldly wisdom. And boy, that's what you got today. You find it in verse 5 where he says, "...that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men." but in the power of God. You see, the church at Corinth had come to the place, like most Baptist churches today, where the Word of God wasn't any good anymore. It wasn't enough. You're going to find that all the big churches today, when they want to reach out and branch out, you know what they do? They put on all their staff members, you know, and everybody's got this, and then they create, and they'll get what they call a Christian psychologist. You know why they'll put on a Christian psychologist? Because they don't believe the Bible has the answers anymore to solve everybody's problems. I've sat out and talked with those Christian psychologists. I've talked to them. I've talked to them. You know what one of them told me one time? We're down there and we're saying, well, he said, well, I believe the Bible's a great book, and I believe the Bible is an important book. He says, well, you and I have a problem, Bob, is he says that you say that the Word of God is all truth. He says, I just simply think that the Bible's a great book, but there's other truth outside the Bible. You know where you wind up when you start with that? you'll wind up building a church on man's wisdom instead of God's wisdom. I'll say it for you very clearly, just in case you ain't sure where my position on it is. There ain't anything in this world, anything in this world that goes up against that Bible. That Bible is found in the English translation of the 1611 King James Version of the Bible is the absolute standard, and there isn't one problem that you can think about, got into, haven't got into, ever wanted to get into, that you can't find detailed, laid out, show you how a man got in it, show you why he got in it, and show you how to get out of it. That's the book. That's the book. I remember one time down in Springfield, there's a big Baptist church down there that really presides over all really the Baptist churches. And years ago, they asked me to come down and they had looked at our ministry and saw some things that were going on. And they, they said, uh, can you come down and meet with our pastors and, and try to tell them what, what you're doing? Well, I don't really have any answers. And I used to get a lot of, you know, uh, it's just like I get, I still get them every once in a while. I'll get letters in the mail and they'll say, somebody will say, well, you know, can you tell me the secret to your ministry? And I just send them a copy of the Bible back. I mean, I don't know what else to do. There is no secret to it. And I was down there and they had like 20 guys down there in a conference room table. Nice place. I mean, beautiful church, beautiful conference room, teak wood, you know, old nine yards, little coffee and little silver things where you had to hold your little thumb out when you drank it. It was great stuff. 
Now, we're sitting down there, and the pastor opens up. He says, now, I invited you down here because I want you to share with these guys and help them because we're having some trouble in our ministry, and we just can't seem to get things going. Can you just tell us what you're doing? And I said, and I began to go into a you know, talk about some things, and I said, and I said, the number one thing you've got to do is that you've got to get your people where they absolutely believe that they have the truth of God in their life that they can depend on every day of their life. And now I'm already seeing I'm in trouble because they're looking up at the sky, and one of the guys clipping his fingernails, you know, and, and there's a guy down here on the end who I found out later was their staff psychologist. He looks at me and he says, I have a question for you. And I said, what's that? And he looks at me and he says, what's true? And I said, you know what? There's somebody in the Bible to ask that question. He didn't know what it was in the Word of God either. It's in John 17, 17. Thy word is truth. I said, you remember the Bible? It's a black book about that big. It's got, got gilt pages on it. Sometimes the letters of Christ are in red. I knew right there I was in the wrong place at the right time, and it didn't work out very well from that on. It was one of them things that starts out on top of the hill and then goes down very quickly. The Titanic didn't sink as fast as my relationship did in that church. But that's okay. That's okay. The church at Corinth had got into the fact where they didn't think the Bible was enough anymore. And the churches today are into the fact where they really believe. And I don't care what they preach and I don't care what they say. I don't go by what a man says. I go by what he does when he's pushed to the matter of believing in that book as the Word of God or not. And the whole Christian world today simply comes down to this. And when you put on a psychologist, Christian psychologist, whatever that is, and that wasn't an axiomoron term, a term, a contradiction of terms, I don't know what is. But when you put on a Christian psychologist, what he does is he takes, he takes Bible principles and, and like making some of them little sprinkled donuts or cookies, he sprinkles and dabbles Freudian psychology all through the thing and then brings it up and tells you, well, the bottom line is, at the end of the day, he does exactly what the Bible says we can't do. He allows you and I, and we love to do this, blame our problems on something or somebody else. Boy, we love that. You give somebody, whether he's saved or lost, an alibi not to take personal responsibility for their own sin, they'll fill your church faster than you know what to do with them. You know why? Because nobody wants to be accountable today. Nobody. So in chapter 2, we see that they've entered into worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. In chapter 3, we see one of the greatest chapters in the Bible on the judgment seat of Christ. Now, in this chapter, verses 4, 5, and 6, here's what they're arguing over here. In chapter 1, they were arguing over who won who to or who baptized who. Now, in this chapter, chapter 3, they're doing the same thing with who, uh, who won who to Christ. And they're saying, well, I'm of Paul. Somebody else says, well, I'm of Apollos. Somebody else says, well, I'm of this guy. You know, that means who won you to Christ. And what they're basically saying is that because, again, Somebody of great spiritual notoriety like the pastor of the church or somebody up in the hierarchy of the church won you to Christ. And Ralph Schwartz out here, factory worker down at the Jerusalem Tire Factory, won you to Christ that your spirituality is based on who won you to the Lord. And of course, this is where, again, he takes the problem and he teaches us one of the greatest places in all the Bible on the coming day that we're all going to stand before which is called the day of Jesus Christ in the Bible, the judgment seat of Christ. And wow, what a great little outline. Verse 9, he talks about the fact that we're laborers together. Verse 10, he talks about the fact that you and I as Christians, based on the fact that, uh, that we're saved, need to be a wise master builder. He says in verses 11 and 12 that the day you and I got saved, we built a foundation in our life, and that foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then he says on and down through there in the same two verses, he says, and the rest of your life you're going to build on that foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. Then he goes down and he says that the day's coming, the day of Jesus Christ, when every man's work's going to be sorted out, and the fire is going to try every man's work. And he says when the fire hits the gold, silver, and precious stone, what fire does to those things is purify it. When it hits the dead wood, hay, and stubble, it burns it up. And your and my millennial and reward and inheritance is going to be built and based on what you and I have built on that foundation. And of course, we've talked about it before. Gold, the deity of Christ, learning to know more about God. Silver, price of redemption, understanding more and more what Christ did for you. Precious stones, people. Malachi chapter 3. You see, the more you learn about God, the more you can't learn about God without learning out what He did for you. The more you learn about what, who God is, the more you learn about what God did for you, the more you can't keep your mouth shut and you've got to tell somebody about it. Gold, silver, precious stones. And that's what he's talking about. And he's showing us there that, hey, you guys are arguing about who won who to Christ and building some significant. Don't you know that we're labors together? You need to be building on the foundation. You're building the wrong things. And boy, he just, he lays it into them. Then chapter 4. Chapter 4 is a great chapter. Chapter 4 kind of goes along with chapter 3. In verse 1 he says this, Let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ, and, watch this, stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. You know what he says in chapter 4? He says the job of every pastor, the job of every teacher, the job of every Christian is to be a steward. In this case, he talks about stewards of the mysteries of God. I don't know if you know it or not, but in the New Testament, there's seven mysteries given to the church. Those seven mysteries will help you when you know them and learn them and understand them. They open up a whole series of a systematic study through the Bible. Because in the Bible, you not only have seven mysteries, you have seven resurrections. You have seven different baptisms. You have seven uh, uh, times seven of the times coming through the Word of God. You have seven judgments in the Bible. Everything is a systematic study of sevens, and the key to opening up that systematic study is understanding the seven mysteries. That's why the church would not have the heresy it's got in it. The church would not be confused on the doctrine that it doesn't have today if pastors and teachers were just stewards of the mysteries of God. You ask the next pastor you see what the seven mysteries are to the church in the Bible and watch him look at you like a frog in a hailstorm. He doesn't have a clue. On top of that, there's 12 mysteries given in the New Testament to the nation of Israel. And those 12 deal with the nation of Israel, and uh, the 7 deal with the body of Christ. And they deal with keeping your doctrine pure and opening up the Scriptures to giving you the systematic, biblical, New Testament, Holy Ghost way of laying out and studying your Bible. And if every pastor was as faithful to the mysteries of God as he is his own denomination and his own political skills, the Christianity would be a lot better off. And I don't know, you know, there's... I'll tell you, I'll tell you one of the things that doesn't make for good preachers today. I talked earlier about the fact that you find a lot of guys that can teach and teach well. You don't find many preachers today. You don't find many men who can just get in there and rip it up. I mean, they, they, and you know why? Because I'll tell you what, to real, be a really good preacher, you've got to be mad about something. At any given time, you find, at any given time in my life, and you find me, I'm mad about four or five things really bad. Yes, I do have an anger problem. Yes, I'm looking at you. I have an anger problem about four or five things all the time. How many ever saw the Challenger blow up? Remember that thing back there in the 80s? That was a terrible thing. But I remember sitting down there watching that, 
And I remember them going up there, and I'll never forget it to this day. That old thing took off, you know, and all those people in there were eight or nine people. How many was in there, you know, and they was up there. And I'll never forget. That thing took off, and there was fire blowing, going, and just roar, and just, I mean, it was just coming out of there, and that old thing was moving up there. And it, when the space shuttle back then went off, it kind of laid over on its side. And at a certain point, right before you went to full throttles, you rotated about 20 degrees, and then you hit full throttles, and then you really blew off. Well, that's when it blew up. And if you know anything about the Challenger deal, you know, it had a little hole, a little leak in it, you know, and the hydrogen and the stuff mixed together. And, and uh, when he went to full throttle, it blew the hole bigger. It mixed with the stuff, and you don't want to do that in a rocket. You know why? Because a rocket is just a big explosion under control. Now, if you want a great example of that, watch that footage. And you can see it all the time. When he put that thing to full forward, it exploded, and then you had the rocket, power, gas, hydrogen, and all the other stuff out of control. Up to that point, it was under control. And what you got in rocketry is nothing more than taking an absolute explosion that will destroy everything in a two-mile radius and keep it under control that the explosion does not explode. It just explodes in a controlled fashion. You know what preaching is? It's exploding in a controlled fashion. It's being mad about some things and just can't stand it in some things. But you know you can't go to full throttles and explode all everybody because they look at you like an idiot. So every time you get up to preach, you're like a controlled rocket blast and you got so much energy because you're so mad about some stupid things in this world and stupid God's people and the way it's going and how dumb the whole thing is and how they're so blinded to this that every time you get up and preach, you're like a rocket being launched down there at St. Kennedy's. I mean, you're just, I mean, excuse me, Cape Canaveral. I mean, you're just, you just explode but in a controlled way you know why because there's no passion today nobody's mad about anything christianity has become such a lullaby land christianity is such about us christianity is about our comfort we don't understand that down through history down through history that there were men and women i I get i get so uh, you want to get me up over something and i do very well with it you want to get me up over something get me into a discussion on the issue of the King James Bible with somebody and, and, and you and I'll, I'll tell you it, it happens to me all the time and I just I have to keep the explosion under control because boy I'll tell you what you want something to get me off you know why because I'm telling you what it, 120 years ago the guys who now are called heretics for believing the Bible 120 years ago they were the good guys and anybody who didn't believe it was then a heretic back then but see times have changed you know why because people are stupid that's why I can feel it right now. My booster rocket's got a leak in it. Look out. <laughs> That's the problem, you see? And that upsets me. And there's nothing worse than I hate in this world. I don't like to use the word hate. But if anything I cannot stand in this world is sit down and talking to somebody who hasn't got a clue. You know what? I've said it before. I don't care what you believe. I do not care what you believe. But what I want to find out is do you know why you believe what you believe? God said to me one time, he says, well, the King James Bible couldn't be the Word of God. And he said, it's got all kinds of errors in it. I said, why is that? He says, because the men that translated it weren't very good men. I said, let me ask you a question. How many men translated it? He didn't know. I said, give me two names. Of t- I don't want, there was 47. I don't want two names of two men that translated it. He didn't know squat. You know why? It was a pickup line. He heard it from somebody else. He didn't know. 
He didn't have a clue. And there's nothing that infuriates me today. It's the fact that the body of Christ is going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ naked, losing it. I told a guy last night, God called me on the phone last night. He says, I just pulled over it on the road down here. He says, and I just wanted to call and see how you were doing. I said, I'm doing fine. He says, can you give me something to tell my church tomorrow that would bless them? I said, sure. He says, give me something. I said, I am firmly convinced that the only thing that's going to keep the body of Christ from lining up with the Antichrist and going hook, line, and sinker is the rapture church. Give them that tomorrow. He said, well, that's going to make them mad. I said, I sure hope to God somebody gets mad about something. <laughs> that's the problem. We're passive. And that's why across this country, when men get up to preach, there's no fire. There's no passion. It's nice teaching. And I'm saying they say great things. They give great. But give me a man who, when it needs to turn the fire up, can without a scraper, without any kind of painters, rip the paint off the walls and send you out with your tail on fire. We don't have that today. You know why? Because you do that once, nobody comes back to church. We're not living in a day and age. Now, you know why this thing about the the mysteries of God upset me? Because it can be seen at a glance by a blind man. The blood of every nation stains the hands of every preacher and every Bible teacher because it is the unfaithfulness of these men as the stewards of God over the mysteries of God that are ultimately responsible for the demise of every nation on this planet. You say, how is that? Because no nation in the history of the world ever went Catholic, communist, atheistic, liberal until the spiritual leaders dumped this book. And there isn't five people in this city that understand that. You know what? And out of the five that you couldn't find, none of them care. That's why there's no passion. That's why there's no passion. Back in the old days, you know what they said? Somebody said, how do you pastor a church? You know what they tell you? They tell you all kinds of things. In my day growing up, when somebody asked one of those old boys how to build a church, you know what the answer was? Go into a town, son, get on fire for God, and everybody in town will watch and come, you watch, come, you come to watch you burn. No passion. Nice stuff. Good stuff. No passion. Nobody's mad about anything today. Nobody cares about anything today. We're just drifting along here, man, having a great time, and nobody cares that the world is in apostasy, that the body of Christ is shot. Now, I get upset about I'm mad all the time you see me. I've got an anger problem. Mark it down, Barbie. I've got an anger problem. Every time I get up to preach, I hear about the dumb, stupid stuff. When Pope Paul died, I'll tell you what, I, if I had a chainsaw with a cut through metal, I'd have cut down a lot of flagpoles. How dare a body of Christ run up a flag at half past for a drunken, fornicating leader of the church of the devil himself that you're going to have to stand next to for all of eternity with the Waldensians and the Albigenses and the Huguenots who paid for their life in blood by that church. God have mercy on my soul. And then I'll tell you what, wow, Billy Graham, boy, getting up on national television saying that the Pope was the greatest Christian leader in the 20th century. You know what? Nobody cares. 
Next year, when he shows up down at Yarrowhead Stadium, all the stupid Baptist churches will line right up to be right with him. You know why? Nobody cares. No big deal. He's a kind man. He's a nice man. He's an old man. He's been around for a long time. What would your be advice to him? I'd tell him to lose 20 pounds and get some tanning salon coupons so when he stands at the judgment seat of Christ naked, he doesn't look too bad. Yeah, I'm mad. Mm-hmm. They say in the black churches, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. They do that because they're mad. They don't want to cuss. <laughs> they go, mm, 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 mm. What I'm doing. Now we come to chapter 5. We see that in this church, it's an unclean church. Man's having fornication with his father's wife. And here again, church fails to respond. Paul takes it, rebukes it, lays out a great tool in dealing with people and Dealing with people in problems. You know, as I said earlier, the church has the wherewithal to solve any problem in any family. There's never a time that the Bible doesn't cover what to do. Problem is getting people to do it. And sometimes when you're dealing with people, whether it's kids with parents with rebellious kids or wife with a husband or whatever, sometimes, or somebody who just gets into sin won't do what's right. Sometimes the only thing to do is is the radical move. And the radical move is found in chapter 5 and verses 4. And this is what he tells them to do here. And it's a radical move, but sometimes you have to do it. He says in verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says his spirit, he says, what I've written you, what I've taught you, what I've given you, and then you've got the Holy Spirit of God to lead and guide you too. He says, you take this man who won't do what's right, and you deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And most people don't know what to do with that verse. They don't understand that there's two condemnations in the Bible. One is eternal condemnation, going to hell. The other one's a physical condemnation. That's your flesh on this earth. And what he's saying here in giving the church is this. There's sometimes, mom and dad, when you have a daughter or son that won't do what's right, refuse to do what's right, continue won't do what's right, live their own lifestyle <coughs> and do what has to do and won't do what's right, won't come to church, won't do what's right, do their own thing, come home drunk, come home this, come home that, <coughs> and you just keep living and let them live in your house. After a while, it's all right to help them to a point, but after a while, you start supporting whatever habit they're in. There comes a point when you got to say, son, you know what? <coughs> I love you. We've tried everything in the world to help you to get right with God. But you know what? This is God's house. It isn't my house. And I'm not going to allow you to live here and bring the devil home with you every night. So if you're going to live like the world and you're going to live like the devil and you want to serve him so well, then you know what? Then you go let the devil take care of you. So maybe the kid lives on I-435 under the, under the overpass in a cardboard box for a while. So maybe he goes two or three days without eating. You know what? Now, see, parents can't do that today because of the fact that, again, we're way outside the Word of God. That's a radical move. I'm not saying it's something you do all the time, but I'm saying this. There's sometimes in somebody's life that all you can do is let him get out there and get a good taste of the world. That's what the prodigal son did. And when he got out there and he started leaving his father's house where he had all the good stuff to eat and the servants looking out for him, now he's eating pig stew down there in the slop. He comes to himself. But you see, we want to deny our children that. We want to deny somebody that today. We don't want them getting out there because they might get hurt. We don't want them to get out there because who they might be around. Well, you know what? Probably the people who's going to be around under 435 are going to be better people than who he's hanging out with now. At least they're all in the same boat. They can sit around and talk about each other's misery. And chapter 5 is a great tool in dealing with people when they come to a point where they just refuse to do what's right. You simply got to turn them over to Satan and say this. Basically, Satan, 
God can't do anything. I love this boy. I love this girl. I love this person. But you know what? We've tried everything we know how to do. You're going to have to just let his flesh get so tore up by the devil that that's the last chance that he may come to his senses and then come back to God. Sometimes that's all you got. But there's always something you can do. Then in chapter 6, great chapter on the church not getting involved in taking your squabbles before a civil court. And in chapter 6, we see verse 5, he says, I speak to your shame. It is so that there is not a wise man among you. Nobody here that's got any kind of wisdom? No. Answers his own question. Not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother, go at the law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore, there is utterly a fault among you, because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, you do wrong and defraud, and, you, and that your brethren. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Now he comes down through here, and here's the problem you got. This babyfied church is messed up on everything, and you got two Christians now that are having a fight over something. And it doesn't matter what it is. The Christians fight about things all the time. Again, the church has every means within itself as a governing structure and body based on the Word of God and the New Testament principles to solve any problem that somebody gets into. But here's a situation where they can't. They won't. And so now they're taking their fights and they're suing each other in a civil court. He says down there in verse 3, he says, Don't you know that someday the body of Christ is going to judge angels? Great white throne judgment. He says, how in the world, if you're going to stand someday and you're going to judge angels by the principles of the Word of God, why can't you solve the little squabbles you've got right now in life? And he says, dare any of you having a matter against another to go the law before the unjust and not before the saints? And you see, and here's where Rear Woman comes in. You know what he finally says? He says, if he won't do what's right, okay. Let him defraud you. Romans chapter 15, verse 1. Take the hit. Let him defraud you. Why would you take him to court? Somebody, somebody says, let me $100 and I'll pay it back to you, you know, and then they decide they're not going to pay it back to you and you get in a squabble over it. Or somebody does this and borrows your car, you know, and goes out there and, you know, and dents it back up and then comes back and says, well, that was on there before, you know, and you start to have all kinds of problems with those things like that. You know what he says? He says, why are you going to court? If you can't solve the thing within the church body, he says, then take the hit. Let the guy defraud you. What is your big deal? You think God isn't keeping the record? He said, so the guy stiffed you for 200 bucks. You know what? He just lost his millennial inheritance. So the guy stiffed you for a banged up fender. So the guy stiffed you for this or for that. So the guy won't make it right. What's the deal? God's got the record and God's keeping the books. And you know what? No unrighteous man is going to inherit the kingdom of God. The key word there is inherit. That's your inheritance. In the millennium. So he says to the church, what are you fighting about? You have wherewithal within the body to solve these problems. When it's unsolvable, let it go. Take the hit. Ye that are strong out the barely infirmities of the weak, let them go. Let them rip you off. Don't get in a big deal about it. You know what? God's keeping the record. God will take care of you and God will take care of him. He's talking about the fact that that's the way we operate. And there he reverts back to those principles in the great book of Romans that we saw. Then we come to chapter 7. Chapter 7 is the New Testament teaching on divorce, marriage, and remarriage. 
Will you go to 99.999999% of the Baptist churches today and 100% of their books and writings and teachings, you'll find that they always base their teaching on divorce, marriage, and remarriage on Deuteronomy chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 19. In case you haven't saw it yet, both those books are in the Old Testament. have nothing to do with the New Testament. The key structure for the New Testament body of Christ on divorce, marriage, and remarriage is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. There's 20 biblical principles in this chapter. 20 biblical principles in this chapter on the church's stand or what the church should stand on. Well, forget that. What Christ's stand is on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. I, honest to God, I've come down through here sometimes and I've watched people come to this thing. I watched a pastor one time get into 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I thought to myself, what an idiot. He got down here in verse 6, didn't have a clue. Verse 6 says, but I speak this by permission and not by commandment. Verse 10 says, and under the, this is Paul speaking, and under the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. And then verse 12 he says, but to the rest speak I and not the Lord. Somebody asked a preacher one time, what is he talking about there? What does Paul mean in verse 6 when he says he speaks this by permission but not by commandment? Is Paul saying something that he shouldn't say? And what does he mean in verse 12 when he says, but to the rest speak I, not the Lord? Is Paul talking out of context here and he doesn't have the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God? You know what the preacher said? He said, this is obviously a place where Paul was out of fellowship with God and was speaking when he shouldn't have been speaking. Oh, yes, and that's why God put it in the Bible for all inspiration given by God, even the stuff that's wrong. No, see, what they don't understand is simply this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is the New Testament doctrinal teaching to the church on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and basically female-male relationships in general. And it's the standard teaching. And it's different in the Old Testament. <clears throat> You've got new doctrine in this chapter for the church under grace that the Old Testament nation of Israel did not have under law. So when you come down to verse 6, he says, But I speak this by permission. Paul's saying the Holy Spirit of God has given me this to say by permission, not by commandment. There's no commandment in the Old Testament on this. This is something new to the church that wasn't in the Old Testament under the law. When he says in verse 10, And unto the married, I command, yet not I but the Lord. He's now saying, here's a place that is commanded in the Old Testament, and it lines up with what God wants the church to do. And when he comes to verse 12, and he says, But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. He's saying, now I've got some new things to give you that God's given me to go to the church that isn't found in the Old Testament when the Lord spoke to the nation of Israel. The difference, my friend, is you can't go to Deuteronomy chapter 24. You can't go to Matthew chapter 19 because they were written in an Old Testament context of the nation of Israel. If you want to find out what the Word of God says as far as the church in the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, you've got to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and there you will find some things that are not given under the law in the Old Testament but are given to the church under grace in the New Testament. It's as simple as that. Now we got chapter 8. This is my favorite chapter. Boy, this is where most Christians are today. Chapter 8, meat offered to idols. The great dilemma of Bible Christianity. I love it. And this one, here's what you got. And this sets up a great teaching for the body of Christ. Now, here's the problem. Down at the market on Monday morning, we can go down there and we can buy strip steaks for $2.95 a pound. Now, right next to them are strip steaks for $4.95 a pound. The difference is quite big. And being on the budget that we all are, it's the same meat. It looks the same. It's just as good. This one's $2.95. This one's $4.95. Well, being the thrifty shopper that I am, <clears throat> I'm going to obviously buy the $2.95 a pound versus the $4.95 a pound. But here's the problem. 
is I'm having them weigh that up. Christian brother comes over and he says, Brother, don't you know that that meat up there has been offered in the temple to all the pagan gods down there, Baal and all that stuff? That meat you're buying down there was offered up to them stupid idols down there. That, that demon possession down there, that meat's got demons in it. You eat that meat down there, you're buying the devil's meat right there. You can't be buying that kind of stuff. Like a kind of Christian would buy meat from the temple. See the dilemma? And they're fighting about this now. Because you got some of the brethren over here that are the sanctimonious type, and they're saying, I'll never eat meat deviled before pagan gods. I'm a Christian. You got somebody over there and says, Yeah, you're a Christian, ain't got any money. I got $2.95 in my pocket because I bought the other meat. <laughs> See the problem? Now, Paul comes down through here and he says this. This is a great study. He says in verse 4, 5, and 6, meat offered to stupid idols, and you get it at a cheap price, save some money, absolutely okay. He says, it doesn't mean anything. He says, you're smarter than they are. You know that the meat offered to idols isn't, you don't buy into their dumb, stupid religion. You don't give any credence whatsoever. They got this big pot belly Buddha down there that they're running the meat by and saying, bless the Buddha, bless the Buddha. You're saying, hey, bless that big one, Buddha, because that's the one I want on my grill tomorrow for $2.95 a pound. See? There's no difference. The meat offered to idols means absolutely nothing to a born-again child of God. You know why? Because when you know the book and you know the Word of God, you know that greater is He that's in you that's in the world. Stuff doesn't bother a child of God, but you might have some brother that hasn't got the light on it yet. You might have a, here again, you that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. You might have a Christian brother that isn't there yet, and he still sees that as a pagan thing. So he says, you got to be careful. You got to be careful. You got to be careful. You don't want to hurt the brother for the fact that you can get a good price on the meat. He said, there's nothing wrong with buying the meat, and go ahead and buy the meat. Just don't go back to church and tell everybody, hey, there's a great deal on demon meat down at the market. You see? In other words, don't hurt a younger Christian. And how many times have, you know, older Christians with their liberty or knowing what they can do hurt a younger Christian who didn't know what they could, what they could do? And it's just a problem. It's a problem. And it's one of those things where you, we see it in Christianity all the time, you know. And uh, I remember, you know, when a big deal was Cabbage Patch Dolls, you know. And the secret was that when Cabbage Patch Dolls were made, they put a demon name in it. And you give your kid a demon Cabbage Patch with a demon name in it, you got a demon, your kid's got a demon to play with. Well, you know, believe me, folks, I know how that works, but that isn't why your kids are demons today, okay? <laughs> Don't come to that excuse with me. And the same guys were up there. It was on the radio. There were books being bought on, sold on it. The same, everybody was doing it. Everybody that was doing it and saying it. But at the same time, if you'd ask them what day it is, they'd say it's Tuesday, it's Monday, it's Wednesday, it's Thursday, it's Friday. Don't you know their names of pagan gods? Don't you know there ain't much in this world that isn't pagan and of the devil? Don't you know that right now as we speak, he is the God of this world and he runs it all anyhow, so everything's going to be with him? What are you thinking about? You think you go to McDonald's, you're somebody in there, you got Christian burgers? You think you go to Burger King? The king up there is in Revelation chapter 19 flipping them burgers back there? You think they're saved cows? What are you, Buddhist or something? You think they're saved cows and unsaved cows? I mean, people don't understand. This whole world belongs to him. I've got a book that tells me all of those things. I don't have to worry about them. But at the same time, I'm not going to do something stupid that's going to hurt a younger Christian. 
I'm just not going to do it. You find it in all kinds of areas. you got some Baptist churches that, you know what, if you don't have a suit and tie on, you know that you're, you're lost. You know what, I think when you come to church, you ought to look as nice as you can look, but you know what, there ain't nothing in the way you dress. You dress to please the Lord. I don't know what else to tell you. Do I like what everybody wears all the time? No, but you know what, that's me. Would I wear the same thing? No. You know what, why do I wear a suit and tie? Because you know what, I don't know why. But my wife tells me to. I don't know why. I just assume not. Some people say, but if I get up here without one, some of you would say, well, Bob, what's, why does the, I just like him in that. Why does he not wear that? Some of the other ones are sitting there right now saying, what is that idiot? He's the only one here with a tie on with a suit. What is his problem? You know what? I understand. But you know what? Here I am. I don't care either way. You go to some churches, and if you wear, you know, if you have slacks on, you're, you're terrible. You're just terrible. You know what? I learned a long time ago you can't legislate morals. You just can't. I've known the guys where he said, well, a woman has to wear a dress. And so when a woman puts on a dress and doesn't wear slacks because now she's golly, that dress is so thin a mosquito could fly through without breaking his wings. <laughs> so now it's got to be a dress, but it's got to be thick. <laughs> then I've seen them, some of them wear them so tight, look like a skin diver suit. You know what? You can't legislate morals. You just can't. You just can't. I knew a pastor one time, good friend of mine. He was such a hang-up on wearing a suit and tie all the time that when he went skiing out in Colorado on his vacation, he wore a suit and tie under his snowmobile suit. Now, you think I'm kidding you? Well, you guys told me about the time they went, went snowbill, snow, uh, snow, snowmobiling and the girls had snowmobile suits on and they had to wear culottes over the snowmobile suit because if they didn't, the girls were wearing slacks. I've been to church camp where they said, girls can't wear slacks at camp. you got to wear, you got to be modest. Wear culottes. Did you ever see a girl slide into second base with culottes on? Ain't non-muff modest about it. Now, I, I don't get hung up on those things. You know what? I preach at your heart. That's where I aim. I don't, I don't preach at your conscience. That's between you and God. I figure this. You preach at a man's heart, a woman's heart. You preach the word of God. You teach them to dress, be the best they can be for the Lord. And you try to, whenever they do, they do it, the dress for the inside man instead of somebody else, then what they'll be fine when they come up here or wherever they go. I don't know what else to do. You can't run around, but some of them think they can, you know. And it's the same thing with the meat offered to idols. He says, you know what? If you got a younger brother and he's not got the light you got, back off. Go ahead and get the meat. Just don't walk to church and say, hey, man, I got a great deal. Down at the market, man, under the big demon sign back there, you can get a great deal. Some of God's people are going to have a tough time with that. You got to understand. He said, knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifier. There's the balance. I have the knowledge that I know it's okay, but I have the charity not to flaunt it in somebody's face. The balance. And, and knowledge without charity equals Phariseeism. You become a Pharisee. And that's why you've got to balance the thing on. Chapter 9 just goes right along with it. Great chapter on liberty in Christ. And it connects to chapter 8. You know what he says in chapter 9? Paul says this. And you want to hear this. He says, as a New Testament Christian, I'm not under, I'm not under the law. I can do anything I want that isn't specifically said, can't do this. So there's all kinds of liberty I have as a Christian. I can do what I want, go where I want, be with who I want to be with, whatever the case, as long as it doesn't violate some clear New Testament principle. But you know what he says? I won't. I won't do it. You know what he says? Why? Because the number one thing in my life is not my liberty to do what I want to do, but my ministry for the Lord. And he said, I'm not going to let my liberty jeopardize my ministry for Christ. 
You see, liberty wasn't given so you could do whatever you wanted to do. This is where Christians don't understand it. Liberty was given so you could do whatever God wanted you to do in your life. Wasn't given for you to do what you want to do. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. You ever see this? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, he says the same verse, except he changes one word, and by changing one word, he defines expedient for you. Because in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are edifying. You see, that's my job. My job is to edify you, not to hurt you. My job is to lift you up, not hurt you. If I get to deal with you on an issue in your life, I don't do it in such a way that I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to deal with it in a way that I'm going to help you. Now, you may not see it that way, but that's the way it has to be. The bottom line is, it doesn't do me any good to flaunt my liberty in your life and say, look at me, I can do whatever I want to do. You know, because the Bible says, going back to Romans chapter 14, we've talked last week, the Bible says in 14.7, no man liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. There's always somebody watching your life. What you think you can do and you can get away with and you can may send somebody else to hell. It's as simple as that. Romans 14.6 says, let not your good be evil spoken of. A lot of things I can do that I simply won't do. A lot of things. And Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, this is where we come to living sacrifice. Knowing that there are things that you are under liberty that you can do, but restraining yourself from doing it because of the fact that you don't want to be a stumbling block to somebody else. I understand in my life what I can do and what I can't do. I understand my limitations on what I'll do publicly. I understand where I can go and where I can't go because I understand that the most important thing in my life has nothing to do with what I can or what I can't do. It's my ministry. And I know that even though legally by the Bible I can do it, I know that socially it will hurt my testimony to the fact of being effective to reaching people. And the most important thing to me is building a work for God, not building something for me. So it just comes understanding these things. Church of Corinth couldn't get it. Then chapter 10, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, Shows you how to pull the Old Testament and New Testament together. Chapter clearly shows the Old Testament filled with New Testament principles. He comes down there and gives a short historical synopsis of the nation of Israel. Then he says this in verse 6 and verse 11. In verse 6 he says, now these things were for our example. An example is what you do. And in verse 11 he says, these things were for our samples. An example is not what you do, it's what you are. And then he ties the whole thing together by saying, these things were for our admonition. When you admonish somebody, you encourage them strongly. He says in verse 11, it's for us on whom the end of the world cometh. And then he says, take heed lest you fall. Somebody thinks you stand, check it out. You may be not as sure as you think you are. So that's a great chapter. Then he gets to chapter 11. And all these are just what, when you read through here, this is what you look for in these chapters. We're just breaking it down. Chapter 11, we have two issues. First, there's a breakdown on the authority of the church with the women. So he goes through chapter 1, verse 3, and he talks about the, the order of, of authority in the church. The head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. The head of Christ is God. And the, to make a long story short, the women in the church here are rebelling against the authority, the male authority in the church. And you find a lot the same thing today that's going on, you know, with the women becoming pastors and a big argument over that. And churches splitting over ordaining, ordaining women and deaconesses, you know. And then you got the book, the, you know, that Mary was an apostle. And then you got the Da Vinci Code and all that stuff, you know, that just everybody gets in it and it just becomes a mess. And the church is having the same problem. They've broken the story thought that the women have. And they're exerting themselves outside the authority that they had. So that's why he goes through the whole thing with long hair, how the long hair 
in a woman is picture her submission, her attitude of heart, and all of that stuff. And then the last part of that chapter, 17 through 34, they're messed up on the Lord's Supper and communion. Now, this is where we take our doctrine from, the way we do the Lord's Supper. Because in the New Testament church at Corinth, the Lord's Supper and a communion are two different things. And uh, he go, here he gives the breakdown of it. He gives the rules. He tells who should take it, why you, what you better do before you take it. And uh, here again, the church at Corinth had lost that viewpoint. In the New Testament church, they met together for a meal, a literal food supper. And they sat down and they ate that meal. And that time was a time of fellowship among themselves. Everybody brought food in. Everybody sat down and ate together. And during that time, they, uh, they, uh, they looked toward each other, and they got into a spiritual mode of fellowship together. And that forced maybe some of the brethren or sisterin to make amends with some of the other brethren and whatever they may have little odds over, and then they got it right. Then they go and they take communion. And a communion is when they actually take the grape juice and the bread, and they break it and take it as the picture of the body and the blood. And that's where they enter into that <coughs> communion time, and that's between them and God. So it breaks down into two facets, and that's the way we do it. And we always have a meal together, and then we sit down, and uh, we go through the communion, and we, uh, we take it as you do it in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. All right, then we got chapter 12, 13, and 14. Moving along here. Three great chapters on how screwed up they are on spiritual gifts. Nowhere in the Bible do you get this laid out uh, better than here. And boy, if there's any confusion in the body of Christ today, it's on the confusion of spiritual gifts. And uh, we don't have time to get into all of it today. At some point we will. But uh, let me lay it out for you. The church at Corinth has taken the spiritual gifts. And they've done with the spiritual gifts much like they've done with who baptized who and who won who to Christ. They got it all messed up. They've taken tongues. And tongues is a legitimate thing. We saw it in Acts last uh, two weeks ago. We saw tongues defined in the book of Acts as another language, which is spoken by people from other countries. The languages and the countries are mentioned in Acts chapter 2, clearly defining it for you. And we saw that tongues were for other countries, the Jews in those countries, and they were audible languages. And what they've done is they've circumvented that and they've made tongue, tongues an unknown heavenly language. And they're doing with this <coughs> just what they're doing with the other stuff. Somebody's getting up, ranting and raving in some unknown tongue that nobody knows anything about, claiming some great power with God, and everybody, all the younger Christians are sitting around in ooh and awe, uh, wanting to have that same kind of power. And they're getting up there, and they're rattling off, you know, fee fi fo fum going down the line, you know, everything they're saying, and they're talking about some great power experience with God that I've got. And every young Christian out there secretly wants that experience and thinks there's something wrong with them because they can't have it. And, of course, this is ludicrous. When you got saved, you got all of the Holy Spirit of God there is. There is no more to get. I've said to you many times, it's not how much of the Holy Spirit of God uh, you have, but how much uh, uh, you He has. And that's what you're dealing with here. Now, tongues have been defined. Paul takes them to task and shows them that tongues are not for the Gentiles, but for the nation of Israel. And he lays out in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22, and 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, that they are the sign gifts given to the nation of Israel. Then he lays out the concept of the church. And he tells them that the church's job is to edify clearly, teaching the Word of God, laying out the Scriptures. The church is not to be the author of confusion in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, what the church at Corinth has become. Because you've got all these people standing up here, and it's absolutely confusion hearing everybody, 4, 5, 10, 15, 20 people in a congregation of 100 screaming and yelling at the top of their voice in some jibber-jabber that nobody can understand, and it's utterly confusion. 
And he tells them, biblically, systematically, he begins to lay out the ground rules for the church speaking in tongues. Now, you've got to remember, tongues is a temporary gift given to the early church to reach the Jews of the dispersion that are still around. And when the church of Corinth was in office, working, doing its thing around Acts chapter 57, Acts, uh, or 57 AD, Acts chapter 19 and 20, there were still Jews being around and they were still using tongues. A period of time later, tongues, as with all the signs, spiritual gifts, ceased. And he tells them that uh, a little bit later on in chapter 14. And what you've got here is that the church at Corinth is taking those tongues, which were audible languages given to the Jews, making in them some form of jibber-jabber that nobody can understand, tagging some spiritual significance that when you have the power of God like me, you will speak in the language of the tongues of angels and nobody else can understand it because I am so spiritual that I can only communicate this way to God. And no, you don't understand what I'm saying. God knows what I'm saying. That's what you're dealing with. And all through these chapters, he biblically, systematically lays down the rules for the church, speaking in tongues. And by doing so, takes the modern 20th century charismatic and just blows them right out of the water. The greatest of these is in chapter 14, verse 34, where he says that no women are allowed to speak in tongues. Let me just say this to you. If you took the women out of the tongues movement, you wouldn't have a tongues movement. In fact, anybody who knows anything about history knows that when the church, when the church got speaking in tongues was in 1900 in the Azula Street Mission with Amy Fearson McSimpson, who was a woman, and then it moved to Topeka, Kansas with Temple Bethel Bible College down there, and that's where it started. In other words, what I'm saying is this. You here today with all the guys on there and all the guys speaking in tongues and all the women preachers speaking in tongues, you think it like was the greatest thing in the world. You know what? From, 16, from 1600 to 1900, the greatest religious movement in the world where three-quarters of the world were one to Christ and he had great missionaries and everybody out there around the world, there wasn't one of them that spoke with tongues. When Martin Luther broke the Roman Catholic Church, he never uttered anything in spiritual tongues. When Billy Sunday tore this world upside down one from the other, he never spoke in tongues. When Ina Judson went to Burma and spent the rest of his life and Livingston went to Africa, they were all medical doctors. You know why? Because healing didn't work for him. I mean, the greatest men, in other words, if you want to find somebody speaking in tongues in history, you can't find them before 1900. And it starts with a woman. No offense, ladies. Four characteristics of charismatics I've fed them all my life. Total disregard for the authority of the Word of God. Complete total ignorance of church history. No charismatic movement knows his Bible, only his experience. And the fourth thing is the concept of God is his flesh and his feelings. You know what they do? They try to take 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14 and make it a make it a how-to chapter. How many times I've heard them go to that chapter or one of those chapters to show you how to do tongues? You know what? Look down in your Bible in chapter 14. You see the, unword, the word there, unknown? Well, I don't know if you know it or not, but that word unknown is in italics. There isn't a charismatic on the face of this planet that know why the italicized words are in your Bible. You know why the King James translators put some words in italics and others? Because when they translated from the Greek that they went to to the English, not everything matched up. So they put the words that make the things make sense in italics. And by doing so, they were honest enough. You won't find it in NIV. You won't find it in NIV. You won't find it in any other translation because they're dishonest. When the King James translators put that book together, they were so honest, they wanted you to know the word that they put in that didn't go in, so they put them on italics. So when you read it, you know that it was their words that they put in to make the thing flow. Now, God was over the whole thing and preserved the whole thing, no question about it. But the bottom line is this. The reason why they put unknown tongues in here is because the translators knew that in Acts chapter 2 there was no such thing as unknown tongues, that they were real languages, so they put unknown in there so you know that was the phony tongues not the real tongue. And every stupid charismatic in the world talked about, I got an unknown tongue, I got an unknown tongue. You got an unknown brain, goes right along with it. 
I'm mad about six things now. That was another thing I forgot I was mad about. <laughs> Got to get along here. Chapter 15. Great chapter on defining the gospel and showing that the crucifixion of Christ is absolutely worthless without the resurrection. Chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 4, defines the gospel for you. We're going to go through this on Thursday night, and I'm going to show you how that there are six gospels in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and uh, lay those out for you. We'll go through that when we go through it here, either this week or next week. But as you come down through that chapter, those verses define what the gospel are. Notice it's all according to the Scripture. And then verse 29, you have the great Mormon verse about somebody baptizing for the dead that they take out of context and try to get you baptized for somebody that's already dead so you can get him into heaven. Of course, that's not what he's talking about here. And then in verse 50 through 51, you got the great uh, verses on the rapture of the church. Now, all this stuff in this chapter goes back to the concept of this, that without the resurrection, everything that you and I have is absolutely worthless. Because if Christ didn't come out of that tomb, he's no better than any other religious leader that ever walked this planet. The thing that sets him apart is the fact that, yes, he died, but no, he didn't stay dead. Chapter 16, ending of the book, with a great, great concept we saw in Romans chapter uh, 15, verse 2. And that is the fact that uh, uh, they're ministering not only spiritually, but carnally. Uh, they're ministering the Word of God to people, but they're also ministering to people's needs. And he says in verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints, and of course, what you've got here is a, a church at Jerusalem is going through some tough times. All the other churches are taking up offerings for them, much like what we're doing with the shoes. And they're taking up the offering for them, and they're, they're sending that money to Jerusalem that the, that the saints